All right. So um, brief kind of intro to the show, um, overview of what the, the show is about. Um, it's about, I, I, I think I told you a bit before, right? A little bit. I listened to a few episodes too, because I was curious about it. But yeah, tell me about it. Yeah, so, so it's about words. the, yeah, so the, the business is about helping people um, register their businesses, incorporate and file trademarks. Uh, so, and then the way I, I, I picked those services in particular is these are mandatory uh, things that every entrepreneur or business owner has to do. And they're a complete pain in the ass or a huge headache. And, and it's a lot of learning and a lot of um, problems to go through for something you only have to do once. So it's a, so we're like the headache free solution. And then the podcast is kind of the content marketing branch where um, when you register a business, you kind of cross the threshold into the world of entrepreneurship. And then the content is for people who are maybe working their nine to five job or they're thinking about becoming a business owner or a freelancer or stepping in. And they kind of want to appear into the portal to this other world. Um, I'm using weird language because uh, I base it off of this idea called the hero's journey. So you can kind of search on a wiki. There's like a, it's an interesting kind of narrative structure for how human beings tell stories. Oh, interesting. I should yeah. read that later. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very, very interesting. Um, so like if you look, if you think about like the, the hymn Amazing Grace, it is, it literally mm -hmm. is like the perfect example of that, of that uh, storyline. So you have like the, the hero, the person who's telling the story, the hero, they were living in the ordinary life. And then there was a call to adventure and they pass over through a threshold into the special world. You know, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind by now I see. And then we overcome some sort of great challenge. And then when they come out of it, they bring that back to the public. Nice. So the I guess itself, so. Yeah. yeah. Because the song itself is, uh, it was, it was John Newton who wrote it, right? I think, I don't know. Mm, you know. I don't remember. Sure. <laughs> Some old dead guy. Um, but yeah. like him writing that was like his kind of like uh, coming, like going through his journey, learning something, and then bringing back that which you learn in the quote unquote special world back into the mm -hmm. regular world for everyone else so that they too can start their journeys. Uh, Harry Potter That's follows cool. the same structure. Um, the Matrix follows the same structure. Um, you can go like really, really ancient into like even like the like the Iliad when uh, Achilles is called to adventure. You know, when he's asked yeah. the question, "Do you want to do you want to die young and become immortal, or do you want to live old and um, like be forgotten?" I don't know how much you're into yeah. classics. I'm like throwing some really like obscure. Okay, okay. No, I know, yeah. I know all of those things. Yeah, for sure. I like those kinds of things a lot too. I listened to this. Well, I watched this one YouTube series. Maybe <clears> you've heard of it. Um, What's it called? The messed up origins. It's like all oh, the messed up origins of all the fairy tales. So this, there's this one YouTuber. I think you would like him a lot. His name is John Solo, like J okay. J O N S O L O. And he mm -hmm. like every one of his YouTube videos is just like the origin of a classic fairy tale. And he also gets very into different storylines and different story structures. And he talks about one story structure versus another story structure and the different fairy tales that use each structure. And it's really interesting to listen to. Mm -hmm. uh yeah i think you'd love it yeah i love that stuff i mean children's yeah. stories or like the, the classics that have survived they're very yeah. complex 100 mm percent. -hmm. yeah i yeah. agree um and this one he has like ancient ones and then also he talks about disney and then sometimes he just talks about disney stories and then goes like centuries back into mm -hmm. like the first time that that disney story was told by whoever wrote it originally and then oh, like goes the, through yeah. all the different versions yeah mm -hmm. The source material yeah, that inspired really cool. Disney's interpretation yes. of it. Hundred percent. It's not always what you imagine. Like you kind of mm -hmm. assume that the Little Mermaid was based off of Hans Christian Andersen's Little Mermaid, but there's way more to it than that. Like it's not just one goes into the other, you know? Mm-hmm. So Han wait, not Hansel. 
John Solo. <laughs> yes, John, right, Solo. John Solo. I'm gonna write that Thinking down. Thinking about Star Wars. Star Wars yes. on the mind. Yeah, I was thinking like John Snow or Han Solo. No, John Solo. Yeah. Yeah, John Solo. Love me the humanities and the classics. I don't believe there's cool. such a thing as a. So I studied social sciences, like sociology specifically. I don't believe yeah. there's such a thing as a useless degree. Only useless people. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, and the reality yeah. is, a lot of people end up in in these programs with so on uh, so called useless degrees. Uh, yeah, I find that they were kind of like um, unmotivated to learn to begin with, and they were forced into university because their their parents just it means yes. Something yeah and then they like cheated their way through school or they oh, yeah. just kind of did the bare minimum and then didn't try and actually remember the things that they learned <clears> during <throat> university or during college like they just kind of tried to check off the box that they got the degree yeah and that's the worst thing to like if you do that in accounting then okay you're barely qualified to be an accountant and you can still work a job and do some some level of technical skill or at least the the employer sees it that way right but with the, yeah. the humanities with the arts if you are basically choosing not to learn, like the threshold, like the, like the, like you can basically be a failure at life and still graduate with like a B because yeah. they're very subjective. But the people who really think and wrestle about like, you know, the, the nature of being, the nature of existence, you know, like uh, ideology views and like mm -hmm. what makes us as human beings human when they come mm -hmm. out of university and they apply the, that critical set of thinking skills at any trade or any sort of uh, skill set, it, it unlocks like a whole other level of um, expertise. Mm -hmm. And for them, I feel like it's not even about getting a good grade. It could really just be about learning for the sake of learning, mm -hmm. which is cool. Like even if, you, even if you reflect a lot and work really hard, that doesn't mean that you're gonna get an A plus. It just means that you might learn something, but mm -hmm. that thing that you learn or that thing that you express in your paper might not be what the teacher is looking for or what would yeah. get you that grade, yeah. so. That was yeah. my problem. Like I, I wasn't, like my, my problem was what, like what, I, what I knew and what I wrote or how the assignments were graded, it didn't really work because like, I don't, I don't know, you study anthropology, right? Yes. Yeah, so I don't know if this was your experience, but my experience was that a lot of the younger profs, especially the TAs, they were using academia as a platform for uh, activism. So they would come from a very mm -hmm. Marxist and a very particular ideological branch of the social sciences, and then mm -hmm. basically disavow everything else. And if you weren't like pushing their perspective, it would affect your graded, grades and your performance. Oh, I, I, yeah, I, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I spoke from the heart. Yeah. I didn't care. I didn't care about the grades. I cared about actually learning the material, and that cost me like probably at least fifteen percent of my uh, my my GPA. Probably. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And then it can it can be even more work. Like there's certain students who know just what work they have to do to mm -hmm. get a good grade, and then they'll just do that, which is fine because you know people are kind of crammed for time when they're in university and college, mm -hmm. so they don't always have time to dive into every single different layer of an issue but if you're to dive into every single different layer of an issue and then you come to the conclusion that is against what your professor might believe then mm -hmm. if you want to get a good grade you still have to like back up the other side which is like twice the amount of work because you've basically done the research mm -hmm. from two different sides you know what I mean yeah yeah it, it yeah. is a lot of work but at the same time I think that's really important like I forgot who said yeah, this yeah I agree if you can't argue the other side's position uh, you don't deserve yeah. an opinion now, it's a bit of a harsh statement, but I think there's a lot of truth in that, to be able to argue yeah. the other side's position. Yeah, that's true. It really means that you understand the, the um, position that you have thoroughly. So it means mm -hmm. that you're a little bit more objective and you've done your research and so you're coming to a little bit more of like a researched opinion. But at mm -hmm. the same time, it's also important to 
not let understanding both sides of the argument stop you from listening to the other person's perspective because there's not always just two sides to something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So I love this topic and I'm probably not going to edit it out because this is definitely one of the, <laughs> the type of skill sets that are important to business owners. Um, yeah, sure. Like put it in wherever. Yeah. So, so what do we want to talk about? Do we want to talk about your, uh, what you're doing now, your business, uh, you as a person, like we could probably take this into like three or four different directions right now. Mm, let's see. Um, right now I'm kind of in the beginning stages of establishing my business slash my brand. So mm -hmm. if you do think that your listeners would be interested in that, that's fine. Um, and then I'm in Tanzania right now. I feel like I should probably talk a little bit about that because um, there are certain mm -hmm. ways that you can like wrap your media skills up with like anthropology or with art skills. And mm -hmm. then you can like use your media skills to uh, like as practical skills that can help you work in the field that you want to work in. So we could talk about that if you want to. Yeah, it's up to you really. Actually, you know what? Let's talk about coming from the perspective of you as a person because uh, it is the entrepreneurial okay. journey. And uh, I think it's really normal for most entrepreneurs to be a little bit of an eclectic. Um, I don't want to box people off as like, hey, you're a Tanzania person or hey, you're just um I think yeah. photography before, right? It's, it's you as a person and this is you uh, producing value and your struggle against the world, basically. Uh, so Aaron, yes, tell me more about um, what inspired you to kind of be where you are today. Okay, let's see. So just as a person, what motivated me to do the things that I'm doing, kind of? Yeah. Okay, let's see. So I guess it's been like, you know how back in high school no one really knows what they want to do and uh, so they kind of just stumble into whatever they're interested in like when I was in high school I thought I thought that I wanted to be an architect but I really just thought that because I knew that I liked math and I knew that I liked art and then I kind of put the two together and I was like okay architects that's what I'm gonna do but um, I ended up like I didn't really build up my portfolio so that it would be strong enough to the point that I could get into an architecture program and so I just kind of went into a general arts program at the University of Toronto because it's a good school and I was like yeah I'm still into art and maybe I can find something that I'm interested in there and then once I got there I moved into the new media program because I heard about this from a professor who was teaching me one of the uh, introduction to media studies courses and who's also my professor for the humanities intro course and so uh, I heard about the new media program from him and I liked that it was an applied program, like basically for out of the four years in the third year of the program, when I was doing it, you would go to Centennial College and you would learn about coding, film and design. So mm -hmm. I liked that you would come out of the program actually with some practical skills. So you weren't just doing theory for the entirety of university. So I guess that, and then I kind of like picked and chose from other courses what I liked and I ended up really liking anthropology when I did an introductory class on that because I really liked my professor and the way that she taught it too and just the different um, ethnographies that she got us to read. So mm -hmm. that made me really like anthropology and then it was kind of just a journey from there figuring out like how I could still use anthropology and still use media as I moved on throughout my career. And yeah, I guess that's like the short version. Hmm. So that makes sense. So you have the anthropology yeah. skills, you have the media skills. So that explains the creative side of your, um, your freelancing work. And then also yeah. explains uh, in part uh, why, what you're doing in Tanzania right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so. Tell us more about um, what you're doing in Tanzania. 
So in Tanzania, I am working with a project called T-LED. I came to Tanzania with a volunteer organization called CUSO. And so CUSO is a Canadian organization that sends volunteers in Canada uh, overseas to work um, in developing countries. And mm -hmm. the thing that kind of sets like CUSO volunteers apart from say like another volunteer organization um, would just be that CUSA volunteers use skills that are relatable to their own career and their own field to go to those developing countries and then they use their own skills like since I'm in communications and media when I decided that I wanted to be a CUSA volunteer I looked up positions in communications and media so that I could go to the developing country and help with those kinds of skills because that's what I knew about like I didn't want to go somewhere and then teach something or do something that I knew absolutely nothing about like I didn't want to build a house because I have zero construction experience there's no reason <laughs> yeah. for me to go and help with that and also there's no proof that that would even help out the community like I didn't get to know the community in that case I don't even know if they need that building so that's why I really like CUSO as a volunteer organization like it took me a while to find it because I looked through a bunch of different organizations that I could have went with but CUSO ended up being what I liked um, and I have done one CUSO placement before right after graduating from university I went to Cameroon for six months and I worked with an environmental nonprofit there on their website and then after I finished working with um, the job that I had back in Niagara in Canada I worked at this company for two years and then I wanted to do another like CUSO volunteer placement so I reached out to them and I was like hey what do you guys have in media I want to do a second placement and they were like actually this one project called TLED is wrapping up and you can go and you can help out the uh, what they call SMEs, small medium enterprise, sorry, small to medium sized businesses or enterprises, mm -hmm. enterprises, sorry. <laughs> um, so I would be going there, or I am here um, helping out with these SMEs, and I'm working with them on developing their brands for their products because they are in the early stages of their business too. So I'm kind of, it's kind of interesting because I'm in the early stage of my business in Canada, mm -hmm. and then I'm helping all of these people with their businesses here in Africa and like just helping them establish a base for their businesses. So mm -hmm. yeah, I guess that's what I'm doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting okay, cool. that you mentioned before that uh, you want to go with an organization that makes use of pre-existing skill sets. Because uh, yeah. one, of, one of the things that really, really kind of pissed me off about the um, volunteerism and, and, and a lot of these kind of not-for-profits who intend to do well is actually the amount of damages that they unintentionally cause. So Agreed. like a lot, yeah. So with a lot of those uh, those house building ones, uh, one, of the, one of the kind of scandals is a lot of them would basically have people from the Western world or any wealthy part of the world come in, build a fake neighborhood or a fake a bunch of houses that yeah. are deliberately torn down afterwards. But where they yeah. make the money is it costs like maybe five or six or $8,000 for the people to go there for the two weeks. And then it costs them very little to get the material to build the crap house. And then the materials that the, the money that they took from these kids, they then use to rebuild the, uh, the actual area, which I find is just so disingenuous. <laughs> And I know it's crazy and the worst yeah. thing is that's not even the worst one the worst ones are the ones where you have inexperienced unskilled labor uh, volunteers of, of like uh, relatively wealthy kids because you need money to go to these parts of the world it's not cheap mm -hmm. um, yeah and and they will actually build a house that people will live in so now you have unskilled for unskilled labor yeah. from the first world coming in building terrible houses while able-bodied men and women in these communities are not empowered to you know, Calm down there, turtles. <laughs> now, we're, we're um, able-bodied 
men and women in the local communities are completely disempowered and they aren't given the opportunity to learn these skill sets to actually get up and build with their own hands. 100%. Yeah, a huge part of what CUSO does is like one of their mission statements is that they try and empower the community that they work with. They don't, they try not to just go into a community, build something and then leave it to to just die once the volunteers leave. Like they want the community to actually see what's happening and get involved and maybe for the people from the Western world, I guess, who are trained in these certain skills to work with the community so that the community members can learn these skills and then take them. Because not, um, I mean, it might sound a little bit white knight still because it is mm -hmm. difficult to put this in a way that it doesn't sound like a white knight kind of thing to do. But uh, when it comes down to it, people in developing countries are a little bit less privileged. Not all of them get to go to school. A lot of them have to leave school early because they get pregnant. For example, like they might be raped because there's a lot of gender inequality issues. And so there's things like that happening, unfortunately, which we can't really <laughs> dive into right now. But uh, basically not everyone um, has the privilege to be able to go and get an education. So that's where it, when it comes down to people from Western countries who are very privileged. And we can all admit that people who are from these developed nations are very pri privileged. These people come into these developing countries and then they can use the education that they got to help um, empower these people in these communities with skills that they don't mind sharing with them because like when it comes down to it like I want to share my skills in communications and media and branding mm -hmm. and marketing with all of the on these entrepreneurs because it makes me feel like I've helped them and it makes me feel like they can move on once we go away and they can have their own skills and something really beautiful could be built from that and it's also a really good chance for me to learn about their culture and kind of open mm -hmm. up my eyes to another perspective. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting. So your skill sets are very um, modern and, and advanced in the sense of uh, the kind of tools that you use. So like uh, a lot of software and a lot of computers. So is that, do you find yeah. that to be an issue there? Like the access to um, the technology, like uh, and, and computers that can handle the software that you would need? I'm really glad that you asked that because yes, that is a huge issue. A lot of the issue is just that um, it, like both in Cameroon and in Tanzania, people don't really have much access to internet. Uh, like us volunteers, we just use the hotspot from our phone and we're able to pay for like a nice phone plan. Phone plans here are pretty cheap. Like mm -hmm. I'm paying 20,000 shillings. I mean, sorry, I'm paying, yes, 20,000 shillings a week for 12 gigabytes of internet for every week. Mm -hmm. So I get 12 gigabytes of internet for every week and 20,000 shillings is about um, $10 in Canadian money. So That's at the than what we month. get here. Yeah, 100%. Like, because at the better. end of your month, yes, Canada has one of the most expensive phone plans in the world. Like, they, those are that's one of the countries with the most expensive phone plans. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it is cheap here, like, in terms of getting a cheap phone plan, but still, people here can't always afford to just hotspot from their phones. And so, a lot of them depend on the Wi Fi in the office, which often goes out because of electrical issues like the power going out or just generally sometimes um, the wiring is just a little bit messed up mm -hmm. so they and there's also we're in the rainy season right now too so there's more power outages than there were in the dry season so there's that mm -hmm. too but then once they do get this like software installed on their computer and most of their computers can handle the software it's just the issue of like being able to get it onto their computer in the first place because of internet and stuff but right. once you, yeah, but like once you're able to download things like Photoshop and Illustrator, then you can still make whatever you want with them. But then it's another issue because like who's going to pay for Photoshop and Illustrator? It's mm -hmm. a lot to do with money. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that becomes one of the, the biggest challenges there is when, when you have so little resources. Because it's not just that yeah. like here, a lot of people lack money and, and maybe knowledge and, and willpower, which is kind of, lack of willpower, I think, is really a, a product of privilege. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. I don't, like, I could literally just never accomplish anything for the rest of my life. And I'll, I'll be okay. I'll be a little sad because I haven't accomplished anything. But I'll, my, I'll be pretty, like, fat and happy. Um, yeah. But then I mean, over there, like, you're, that. yeah, you're mentioning, like, the power goes out. Um, yeah. The internet is unreliable. And, yeah. And, and then you mentioned also, I don't know to what degree I want to get into the topic of like rape, but that is something that's really, really problematic, which is also a, yeah. um, the deeper root issue is corruption because people yeah. can do these atro atrocious things knowing they can get away with it or bribe the people who are responsible for keeping this in check. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah. there's a lot of really sensitive issues there during our training, because another thing, another thing that I like about CUSO is that whenever the volunteers arrive in the country that they'll be working in, they do about a week or more of training in the capital city with uh, the CUSO office before they actually mm -hmm. go into the towns that they're working in. Um, so I had my week of training, not this week, but the week before that in Dar es Salaam, which is the economic capital of Tanzania. And then that was done before I came here to Oringa and Oringa is about nine hours west of Dar es Salaam so it's kind of like right in the middle of Tanzania it's mm. very landlocked yeah so, so would you be like, considered it's nice. in, be in the bush I'm not really in the bush no I'm in a pretty big city like Oringa mm. I think is the agricultural capital I mean uh, Oringa I'm in Oringa the town within Oringa the region and Tanzania and so Oringa the town I think it's the agricultural capital of the region of Oringa Okay. And what, what kind yeah. of uh, businesses are you working with? Um, so let's see. I've only, because this is my first week in the project, like I've officially, it's Friday. It's Friday afternoon here at like 5 p.m. And I've officially finished one week um, at the T-Led office. And I've worked with one SME so far because that's all that have come into what we call the hub so far to like get help with their brand and their marketing and everything. So he is, um, he is a person who lives kind of close to the T-Led office. He lives in Njumbe and he makes a product that moisturizes and softens the skin with beeswax and mineral oil. It's kind of similar to okay. Vaseline, but it's, uh, they use a purified version of petroleum jelly and not actually petroleum jelly. Okay. Beeswax, yeah. mineral oil, and it's, yeah, it's really just a skincare product. Yeah, exactly. It's a skin. It's a skincare product. So beeswax is meant to like moisturize the skin, and mm -hmm. then um, the mineral oil is supposed to protect the skin. So I think that they work in tandem to do both. Mm -hmm. And yeah. what's the, what's this person's background? To be able this to person. This so stuff? I've only had I've only had one meeting with them. So I'm gonna ask a lot of those questions next week, maybe on Monday or Tuesday. But mm -hmm. um, I just know that he started his business and he's interested in getting a different brand for it and we didn't get very far on our first meeting yet because uh we were just getting to know each other and stuff so yeah. i don't really know like how he learned to make the product um or if his family made the product before but those are all questions that i plan to ask next week yeah because i'm like that, that's a yeah. really cool idea and one of my first thing that comes up to mind is the i mean the opportunity is huge of course and then you have your creative work you just have to come up with packaging branding photography to get that around so people um have some sort of uh, emotional connection to the product. But then on the other hand, I, I did work with some guy who was a chemist who worked for Revlon at one point and the kind of 
manufacturing that you need to produce goods like this is pretty complex. Like that would be yeah. a huge barrier. So would you guys be yeah, helping I with loans and financing? Mm, we help them with finding grant resources and then we're also connected like TLED as a project is connected to this one granting resource called TIF mm -hmm. uh, or TIFF but it's not Toronto International Film Festival and it's only one F <laughs> yeah. and uh, I think that's the Technology Innovation Fund so they provide grants to some of our SMEs for things like CNC machines mm -hmm. um, because a lot of our SMEs benefit from getting big machines so they can produce more product. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's one of the the super important things about the developing world is being able to get that kind of um, infrastructure down. Because I was talking to you earlier yes. about um, about the textiles. Uh, I asked you to send us some pictures about like some of the the clothing uh, that was being sold there. So, quick bit of uh, oh, yeah. background context. Yeah, I used to work for uh, Value Village, which is a thrift store. Oh, it's yeah. pretty big. Um, mm -hmm. And 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 one of their their one of their kind of like value propositions for their social consciousness, which I absolutely abhor, is they, you donate clothing to them. They're a for-profit company, you donate clothing to them, they sort through stuff and they resell it here. And the leftovers that gets recycled, they sell them uh, by weight to the developing world. So the idea is now these people have oh. good quality Western products, which really is like triple hand-me-downs, right? Um, mm -hmm. So these are, these are like things that are unsellable here. And I think that's just so disrespectful yeah. to then give it to them to, to like to to sell it. Uh, so aside from being disrespectful and you know trying to position yourself as a good person, uh, it also harms their their economy because now these people they know they could just buy like wearable rags from uh, the Western world. They have no incentive mm -hmm. to build the infrastructure to produce their own textiles because it's expensive to produce factories. But we know with a lot of these developing nations, textiles are one of the fundamental. Uh, infrastructure things that mm -hmm. any society needs to have before everything else starts scaling because the technology that you get from there and the skill sets and all that kind of um, infrastructure it trickles into everything else yeah and I imagine that I mean there are options in Tanzania and in Cameroon for you to buy brand new clothes because there's a lot of people who are really good at sewing and stitching mm -hmm. and knitting and weaving in both countries but the thing is is those things are more valuable and so therefore more expensive than secondhand yeah. clothing that you can buy like in bulk from the developed world so and because people are uh, quite poor usually in these countries like I believe that Tanzania is the eighth most poor country in the world last time really? I checked uh, yeah I know I was surprised about that too because Tanzania you'd think would have such a high tourist um, market mm -hmm. but apparently that's the case so I don't know uh, anyway yeah, like people here are still um, pretty poor and so they end up probably buying the cheaper product above the products that is more high quality uh, but mm -hmm. there are a lot more like expats and that kind of thing coming to Tanzania that buy from um, the higher quality like shops and that kind mm -hmm. of thing like there's a lot of people who just sell like handmade leather shoes on the side of the road which is kind of cool and so yeah. I imagine that a lot of expats will buy those shoes because they're still high quality and then that still contributes to the Tanzanian economy which is kind of nice I guess Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. still we can't be relying on expats yeah yeah because at any given point uh if like the government does something that pisses off some expats they could just leave and jump to the next country yeah that's true too like they can't be dependent on expats they have to you know eventually just establish their own way of you know anyway yeah, i'm gonna yeah. stop my thought there <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that's a whole other other conversation yeah. a totally different podcast exactly 
yeah exactly and i don't think that i have enough like knowledge to cover that um accurately like completely and it's a sensitive topic so i don't want to get too much into it i need to mm -hmm. do some research <laughs> no that's fine yeah uh yeah. all right so um so tell me more about i want to hear about the kind of like what your your when you chose when you, Okay, I'm gonna have to edit this. Ooh, waving the screen. All right, make the clean cut here. <laughs> uh, okay, so tell me about the, the moment when you realized that um, graphic, you do graphic design and you do photography, right? Yeah. I'm just gonna call it creative freelance, uh, if, that's, yeah, sure. <laughs> if that's a good kind of description. I call myself, um, it took me a while to come up with an actual label for myself because I have so many different services that I could offer. So I call myself a digital storyteller. Uh, I'm sure other people call themselves that too, but I don't really know like the extent of it. Anyway, that's what I call myself because it, I feel like it encapsulates what I do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So tell me uh, more about the moment where you realized you wanted to be a digital storyteller. Mm. It wasn't really a moment. It was more like, I mean, there was a moment. I guess like everyone does have a moment, so you're right. But yeah, like after I finished working at that, um, at the knife company at Grimsnow Knives, I knew like even before I finished working at the knife company, I knew that I wanted to do something that was related to freelance work. And I wanted to establish a base of clients. And so it got me thinking about what skills I had that I could provide for clients. And I knew that because I did a lot of pr like product photography and that kind of thing for Grimswell Knives, and I worked with cameras and I did videography for them. And I did a lot of video editing for them and filming because I made multiple YouTube videos for them like each week. And so I knew that I could do that and I could do it quickly. And um, I, so I knew that I could provide those as services, but then I also just really like doing graphic design and I didn't really want to give that up. So I just kind of included that in my services too, because uh, the way I see it, and maybe this will change later on, but the way I see it right now is why limit yourself when you can just, when you can provide those services and when you do have the skills to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it makes a lot of sense because you've already been doing it for some time. Uh, I mean, you were digitally storytelling for a knife making company. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I think at the, uh, the yeah. event when I, when I first met you, you mentioned uh, something about how you're doing that for your employer and now you wanted to tell a different story. So what's the, what's a new story that you're, so it seems like the, the transition wasn't so much the skill sets. It's more yeah. about what story do you want to be telling? I am so glad that you said that because that is so true. That's something that I've been thinking a lot about since um, I left Grimms When Ives because although I really like the story of Grimms When Ives, I think that it is really inspiring and it's great for people who want to become um, self-taught CNC uh, machinists. I think that that's great. But at the same time, I get really interested by a lot of different stories and it was kind of limiting to just focus on telling the story of one company so for me it's just like refreshing to learn about the stories of a bunch of different entrepreneurs and then try and tell their stories or try and develop their brands or uh, maybe even just like try to tell the love story of someone who's getting married or tell the story of a house that's being sold just there's stories and everything that's being sold because there's always a person behind it with a story to tell mm -hmm. And are there particular types of stories that you find yourself more gra um, gravitating towards? Yes, cultural stories. So mm -hmm. stories uh, relating to people in different in communities where I'm not familiar with the culture. Um, mm -hmm. And that's part of the reason why I gravitated towards Tanzania. Um, I would like to get in, like more into the international development sector. So it's mm -hmm. kind of a matter of uh, how I do that 
something that I don't know if I can maybe I'll just share this because this is fun anyway but I was doing photos for this one event that we just had this past week it was this um, group of youth uh, called Lyra that came into the hub uh, like the T-led hub where all these different events happen sometimes so uh, T-led was hosting this group of youth uh, called Lyra and then I was doing photography for that event because the people at T-Led and Kusa were just like oh why don't you just like bring your camera in and take some pictures so it was really fun but I talked to one of my coworkers there and she was like hey you like photography you like videography I have this one thing that I'm working on as kind of a side project where I help uh, young girls get educated and I was like oh really and she was like yeah would you like to do a documentary about it and I was like oh my gosh yes I definitely want to do that so that could be something um, on the back burner mm. and so I think that the more projects that I do that are similar to that and the more um, I build up my portfolio to represent that I'm interested in those kinds of stories, then the closer that I can get to actually becoming or actually being able to call myself an actual, an actual documentary filmmaker relating to cultural issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the, the cool thing about that is a lot of the, the long form content is like really, really popular right now. I, I'm actually just amazed at the yeah. amount of time that I spend in my uh, in my life, just like sitting around watching like two, three hour documentaries or just like really long form podcasts. Like I'll be on the bus and like yeah. I'll go through like a, like a four hour podcast and that wouldn't be like out of the question. I totally agree. I think that a lot of people are saying that like, oh, all the consumers, they really like bite sized content. And that's true in some cases, like people do often like shorter YouTube videos. But I think a lot of people are listening to podcasts these days. Mm -hmm. And people are realizing that they're not getting much value from short form content, where you're just hearing a tiny little bit of the story, but it's really just a taste of the story. and You don't actually learn anything. Mm -hmm. So if you listen to a ton of those like bite sized content things, you just spend a ton of time um, not really learning anything when you could have spent the same amount of time more deeply listening to a podcast or watching a longer form documentary. And even then those things are just introductions to what research mm -hmm. you can do on that topic. Yeah. 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 And to add on to that, you know, I, I think a lot of times we kind of underestimate how um, complex the individual is. Cause like I'll, I'll watch a lot of short, I'll watch hours of short form content too, whether it's like 15 seconds, mm -hmm. 20 seconds or a minute. And then I'll yeah, also I watch totally a lot do. of long form. So I'll watch all of it. So whether it's a short yeah. form piece of content that connects me to a longer piece of content, or if it's a longer piece of content that inspires me to start looking at other ones, like it goes both ways. Yeah. And you can learn about stuff from shorter form content too, like to completely contradict what I just said, because if mm. you just like watched a long form documentary or listened to a podcast and then like did a little bit of research, then you could get like some, what my previous boss called golden nuggets from each of those mm. little YouTube videos. And you could just take those and kind of form your own thoughts um, yeah. by kind of like connecting those dots. Yeah. So you're working yeah. on your, one of your, your, I guess your long-term projects would be this long-form documentary on um, international development. And uh, I'm guessing you're focusing on Tanzania for now. Yeah, I'm not really working on any long-form documentary right now. I was kind of hoping to, before I went to Tanzania, I was like, yeah. oh, maybe I'll make a documentary based off of my experience there. But I think that what people would most be interested in and what would be most valuable would be what we were talking about before this podcast started was just finding out the story of one person or one hero and then learning about what makes their story inspiring and mm -hmm. then um, 
if it relates to a larger issue, then that's what would make it actually an important story. A worker of mine who's, um, who's starting up this project to work with young women, and she's like, she's a Tanzanian too, so she mm. knows about these issues. Like she grew up in Tanzania, she speaks Swahili, she understands issues, like she's a female herself, so uh, she understands. And so if I were able to capture her story, then that would be something that I think a lot of young Tanzanian women could relate to. Mm -hmm. okay yeah and um you know while you're talking about that i was thinking like yeah wait a second are there like what's the internet adoption rate like in tanzania right now do you mean how quickly people how many people have internet or yeah 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 because because i know like um because I, I, I look at this really random piece of information just came back to my mind. I remember like a few years yeah. ago, Microsoft did a whole, they put like a lot of money into researching uh, chicken memes in Zimbabwe. Chicken beans. Meme, memes. Like, you know, like here, we oh, had, like, uh, like chicken 10, memes. <laughs> yeah. Like 10, 15 years ago, there's a lot of like, you know, the internet was kind of stereotyped for having a lot of cat videos. Yeah. And then Microsoft was like, well, how come in Zimbabwe, in Zimbabwe and parts of like Africa, it's a lot of chicken video. It's like, they, may, they, they talk oh. about chickens the way that we talk about cats. So, so then like that, that it, um, and their conclusion was uh, people basically make this kind of uh, funny content based on the, an the animals that are just normal in their experience in this part of the world because we are not around farms. We don't see like livestock as much. So we have cats and dogs. Whereas over there, mm -hmm. chickens, or at least in that region that they're studying, uh, chickens were just the most kind of common animal running about. Yeah, and they can be really funny. Chickens can be hilarious. Um, yeah. Maybe these are like memes that I've seen and have been like spread to me from Zimbabwe. You said Zimbabwe, right? Yeah, well, um, this study was Zimbabwe. Yeah. 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 So I'm wondering like, if I've you see that. Of, like, I haven't seen specifically chicken memes. Like back in Canada, sometimes when I would like just see memes on nine gag or on facebook or something mm -hmm. like that then a chicken one might pop up like there's this one that i saw where it was like the chicken head stabilizer and you could move oh, yeah. the chicken's body anywhere and then it would just like keep its head in the exact same spot and all these filmmakers thought it was hilarious so mm -hmm. that's like the one chicken meme maybe it came from zimbabwe, zimbabwe. <laughs> who knows yeah uh, but do you see like oh, any like local <laughs> oh okay um, no, it's fine. I'm just saying, like, that's funny because we were just talking about it a few minutes ago, but my power just went out. Yeah, because I was also thinking, yeah. like, like well, so one of the issues is, well, the, not everyone has the internet there, and maybe internet adoption isn't, uh, and an individual, like, mobile internet adoption might not be widespread. So I was wondering, like, on top of yeah. that, what is the internet culture like in Tanzania? Um, everyone in Tanzania and a lot of other parts in Africa kind of skipped one technology stage and that is like landline phones mm. like everyone didn't have any technology like did well they did have technology but no one really had like communications devices until smartphones and cell phones came about mm. and uh that has equalized uh people in tanzania and then also caused some disadvantages because some people don't have access to the internet because they can't afford like it but most people mm -hmm. can afford the internet because the phone plans are so cheap and the way that a lot of people communicate here is through whatsapp so mm -hmm. uh, and a lot like basically everyone has facebook too so okay. and then i think that more people are getting instagram because since social media is a global thing like it's a universal thing and you can send a message to the other side of the world and it instantly gets to the other side of the world. That's kind of um, 
equalized trends. So like tw trends don't take as long to come to Tanzania or to other parts of Africa, of Africa as they did before like smartphones existed. So now like because Instagram is really big in the West, we're not because, but Instagram's really big in the West. And so in Tanzania, it's not that different. Like Instagram's also pretty big here too. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And, are, and, and do you notice any kind of like local trends that are happening on um, Instagram that we basically wouldn't have like access here or we wouldn't be exposed to here? I don't think that I've been here long enough to have seen uh, trends in Tanzania on Instagram. And my Instagram is also still pretty Western because I only mm -hmm. just got here and maybe I haven't started following enough Tanzanian things. Like I'm following hashtag Tanzania and stuff, but still only the most popular stuff pops up in my newsfeed, like safari pictures and that kind of thing. Um, but I did meet two Tanzanian photographers when I was doing photography for that one Lyra event. And I connected with them and we all follow each other and stuff on Instagram now. And their photos are amazing. Like, mm -hmm. I think that the one has a Mark 80D and he's got a, like an external flash on his camera and everything too. Like it's way nicer than my Canon Rebel T7i. And his pictures are really nice too. He uses a softbox, like, they look great and he kind of is lucky because he gets to use um, all the unique things about the Tanzan like the, about the city of Oringa in his pictures so it really gives mm -hmm. his pictures a certain style that you wouldn't always see like in yeah. Toronto or something yeah yeah does that answer your question I'm sorry I don't really know many trends in Tanzania that's fine I mean you're right only there now. for a week right so like yeah <laughs> it, usually it takes about <laughs> like um probably a few months of just uh getting to know individuals, looking at what's on their feed yeah. and then having them building a personal relationship with real human beings who then start sending you like memes. Uh, it's, it's yes. a type of, cause like on the, on the, you're on the topic of like uh, ethnography, like I, I did a little bit of digital mm -hmm. ethnography uh, and urban yeah. ethnography in undergrad. And I think that's, that's one of cool. the most underrated skills um, mm -hmm. ever. Like when people say like the, the um, social sciences are useless, I'm like, guys, ethnography is literally the most important skill set you can learn as a human being. Like you literally become like, like freaking like, like Jason Bourne or like 007 anywhere you go. You can like figure out anything about anyone or anything anywhere. Yeah, it's basically like having these amazing observational skills that you can also, and you can also take the data that you get from these observational skills and then analyze it to see the trends in a different culture. Like, um, should we explain ethnography to anyone who's not familiar with like anthropology or ethnographies, um, et cetera? Oh yeah, that's probably um, yeah. a good idea. So for the viewers at home, ethnography, I like to call it as a professional justification for stalking people. <laughs> that's kind of true. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Uh, Essentially it's, yeah. So how would you describe it from a, from a anthropology background? Um, I guess I, I, at first I was thinking like maybe I'd describe it as a published piece of work by a researcher who has done observational research and then analyzed their findings into uh, a paper or something or maybe in my case a documentary because I would like to do documentaries that essentially mm -hmm. serve the same purpose as ethnographies but my professor the ethnographies that she had us read in her anthropology classes were just um really detailed descriptions of cultural behaviors uh, in a certain place or within a certain lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of that, like 
maybe I'll give an example. So there was this one book that we read called Righteous Dope Fiend. And it was about, I think it was about the homeless population in a certain area of San Francisco. And one of the anthropologists slash ethnographers went in there and, um, became familiar with that culture and became a part of it and like wrote a lot of observations and then eventually wrote a book about it. And then there's another one called In Search of Respect by Philip Bourgeois, which I do want to read that I haven't read yet and is uh, along this, a similar line. And then um, there's another one that you might be interested in that was kind of the first one that we read, like the first ethnography that we read in our anthropology class called, um, what was it called? Something about the... Uh, I don't want to say it, but it was a Malinowski book. It was something it, like Bernislaw Malinowski. I'm going to have to look it up, but he was mm. basically known as one of the first or as the first social anthropologist because he was forced to stay in uh, the Trobriand Islands for a long period of time around the time of the First World War. And then uh, because he was a white settler from Australia or something like that, he came and then he had to stay there, so he had to learn about the culture and the language, and he ended up with a lot of observations about it and a lot of um, ways that he analyzed it. But it's also a controversial piece of work, too, because he was a little bit racist. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've, I've read some of the old colonial stuff, and it's, it's, quite, it's quite racist, what they say about yeah. the quote-unquote savage. <laughs> it's <Yes>. really bad <laughs> but, but it, it, it's still it's, uh, it, it's history and it's an important piece of work nonetheless yes. um, I yeah, so, yeah so uh, I think what you describe a lot of is a lot of the, the macro theory that goes into the, um, the ethnography so then those would be yeah. the works that you would look about the, the broad theory about other cultures so ethnography is really about studying in anthropology like usually it's used uh, from my understanding as studying and understanding another culture and yes, a lot of the stuff that I've come across from the anthropology perspective is very broad in general. Like they can mm -hmm. get specific into specific like sub niches of yeah. like, sub subcultures and other aspects of society, but typically it's like, hey, introduction to say uh, Southern American culture, introduction to uh, this particular tribe in this island, uh, and yeah. then my background in sociology because we did a lot of the um, uh, the urban stuff. It's more from like the, instead of the top view, we did more like the street view. So it's kind of like, what is the experience like for someone living in uh, the ghettos, for example, right? What is the yeah. urban impoverished experience like experienced by the individual who lives that life? And you need both. You need the macro, yeah. the top down view of understanding norms, systems, um, and, and institutions. And then you also, and like in language, but then you also need to know kind of like from the perspective of the individual who lives in that system as it as normal yeah. like this is normal to them what is that like for them so then the macro involve uh, in, like informs the micro the micro informs the macro and then what i've yes. found in my undergrad was that this is really you know back when they called it new media it's just media now the internet is media, yeah right? uh <laughs> is this is literally no different than what we experience on the internet the internet is almost like an augmented form of uh society and the difference is in our society, there's place and there's space, right? There's physical places, yeah. physical institutions like the mall, the movies, uh, you know, churches or temples or the parks where we participate in activity. But that's kind of different now with these, you know, magical <laughs> squares that we have in our pockets. Um, we, we go to spaces, but we don't actually go to places. Like, like it's all kind of like in our head. So it's, it's mm -hmm. all imaginary places that we attend now. Uh, but at the same time, it's not all imaginary. It's still linked to real physical people. Um, 
So then one of my ways of doing like virtual ethnography is I like to connect with people who are part of a particular subculture. And then, mm-hmm. so that's where like the, the real life work goes in. It's like learning more about how their experience and what it means to them to engage in certain memes and certain like accounts and certain pieces of content. Yeah. And then from there, I gather kind of like um, almost like a stream of uh, content that I'll curate and then I'll start like watching it and try to start developing different theories about how they what this whole phenomenon, this relationship of the online and offline and these contents and creators and content consumers, like what it means mm-hmm. to them. So the audience is probably completely lost now. What is the relevance to this in entrepreneurship? It's, it's market research. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can connect it back to entrepreneurship if we try hard enough. It actually yeah. is, um, it is, it is like marketing, but I think that's something that I wanted to say to that was that Yes, the macro and the micro do definitely go hand in hand. And I think that one way to simplify what you just said could be just when you go and you observe something in the street or in a small space or in a small subgroup, then you can see what um, behaviors there are and what people are doing. And then you can make, um, you can make kind of analyses or you can analyze why they might be doing those things and then once you figure out why they might be doing those things then it tells you a little bit about that culture as a whole and what that culture's values might be which so it kind of moves up from micro to macro Mm -hmm. and I kind of relate it back to um, how you can tell how someone like what someone's insecurities are just based off of what they bring up. So for example, if someone's if someone was insecure about their weight or if someone was insecure about their intelligence, then they might defend themselves against someone who is saying like, oh, hey, you're fatter. Like, hey, I don't know if that dress is gonna fit you or that shirt's gonna fit you or something like that. If the person's insecure about their weight, then they're gonna be like, yes, it does. And they're gonna try and prove that person wrong. And then you can tell that that person's insecure about that. And then the same thing kind of goes for intelligence. And there mm-hmm. are a million other ways that we can take this um and then move it up to marketing like we can say that i guess i'm just bsing at this point but i think that i've made i think that i think that we've kind of made our point like i think that we've run that point dry what do you think (laughs) uh no we have one more point before it's completely dry um i was thinking like one of the mistakes that people make with uh, understanding uh social sciences in, in this particular field and i think this is completely like rampant in uh the the um academic world, by the way, is all this, all these theories of understanding people's backgrounds, what it means to them, it's a very low resolution way of understanding the human being. There's nothing more unique and diverse than the individual. So when we look at like, if I were to read a um, a book on say, I don't know, give me a random culture, um, French Canadian culture. (laughs) Okay, French Canadian culture. (laughs) Let's go with that. (laughs) Or let's let's go with Russian culture, right? Um, Okay. Say like introduction to Russian culture. And I take that and I start making I start treating people, individuals, as if they're a product of the book I just read. I'm going to be wrong, like, yes, pretty often. But yeah. what it does, but what that that kind of macro fear, what it does do a lot of um, how it's a useful tool is it gives me better assumptions about an individual that I'm working with. And when I'm talking mm-hmm. to the individual, I'm always looking to be proven wrong on my assumptions. Yeah. Because, like, for uh, example, like Russia, it's a, it's a, first of all, it's a massive and it's a very old culture. Yes. There's generational yeah. issues, uh, generational differences. It's like, when was that book written? Who was it written by? Yeah. How close were they to the culture? What are their assumptions? You still have to yeah. read like 20 different books on, say, Russian culture. And then you got to spend time with Russian people. And then you got to yeah. correlate the two. And then also, because we're in Canada, it's usually when people immigrate over here, it's a particular subset of 
Russian culture moves here. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but I noticed with a lot of immigrants, they typically are in Canada because they have mm -hmm. issues with their home country. So yeah. like a lot of, um, oh, yeah, so basically like, like a lot of the like Iranians, for example, I know, they're very, they're very non-religious. Even though yeah. when you look at the government of um, Iran, it's, it's very religious. So then it's like, what's going on? Well, it's because the people who are not like the, um, kind of like the current culture, the, they, moved, the, yeah, they don't the like that. So that's why they're here. Culture, they yeah. have to leave. Yeah. yeah. So it gives us a lot of like, I mean, like this information, it gives us a lot of a very low resolution view. So it gives us yeah. like certain like, a little, something that's a little bit better than a stereotype. It, yeah, but you're like only like one step better. It. Yeah. Yeah, I like the way that you put it as a low resolution view, because another thing that I forgot to mention is that as an anthropologist, whenever they make those, uh, whenever they analyze the observations that they've taken, they're still analyzing it then through their own filter and they're still analyzing it and giving it kind of a biasy. Mm -hmm. And so whenever someone reads that, like when someone reads this published ethnography or something like that, that has already been put through the filter of the anthropologist. So you're kind of seeing uh, that culture or that group of people through that blurred lens that the anthropologist had like put up in front of the viewer. And then the mm -hmm. viewer has their own lens. And then that kind of blurs the actual image even more. So that person reading the ethnography cannot just read it and then assume that they know that everything like know everything about that culture because that would be false and they mm -hmm. when it comes down to it they have to go to that culture and then maybe when they go there as long as they can keep an open mind like they should just keep an open mind uh maybe learn some things about the culture and about the history of the culture before they go so they don't know just how to be respectful and then once people open up to them then they can learn about what the real um what the real experience of that group of people is mm -hmm. Oh, right. Good. So yeah. I think we've, I think now we've, uh, we've milked up that. that yes. <laughs> I think we definitely needed to touch on that though, because I mm -hmm. didn't want to make it seem like the anthropologist doesn't have a filter. That is a very huge part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the freelancers that I know in Canada, they, a lot of them started, a lot of them are just a couple years younger than me. Um, or they're older than me and they have a more established business than I would be able to establish at this point. Like I'm 25 mm -hmm. and even though that sounds kind of young and a lot of people consider that young, uh, it's not really that young in the freelancing sphere because a lot of the freelancers started off in high school or university by trying to find clients for uh, the skills that they had because a lot of people learned those skills back in high school or like early university. So if you mm -hmm. wanted to become a photographer, if you wanted to actually have clients and make a full-time living, um, like ha make photography your full-time job by the time that you're 25 or something like that, then you'd have to establish a, a client base either in high school or in early university and kind of use that client base to help you make a little bit of money while you're also like working on school and that kind of thing. And then eventually, like it just takes time for connections to build up and for people to talk about the good work that you do. So uh, it just is a matter of how fast word of mouth spreads. And generally, mm -hmm. if you started earlier, word of mouth will spread quicker or at least not quicker, but you'll have had more time for the word of mouth to spread. Mm -hmm. Okay, so time is definitely a big part of it. And then, so you mentioned, yeah. I, I didn't, like I never thought about that. Like a lot of people who are stable freelancers and have a good um, amount of clientele coming through. Yeah, they did start when they're 12. You know, yeah. they downloaded Photoshop yeah. or they did something, they played around on YouTube and then now they're doing it professionally. So for, yeah, so for someone who's like, say your age, uh, looking to get into freelance work, they're working their nine to five and they want to supplement their income or work towards a career change. What's your advice mm -hmm. to someone who had, did not start when they were 12? 
like there's someone zero yeah. and they like what you're doing and they want to do something similar. So I am coming from a little bit of a place for, of, uh, of privilege here too, because when I graduated from university, I, I was able to go to uh, Cameroon and then get my experience there. Um, and also Cuso paid for my flight and my medications and everything. So I didn't actually end up spending any money while I was there. Like I came home a little bit richer than when I had went off to Cameroon. Well, so that good. was kind of nice. Um, and then I found, and then I stayed at my parents' house for like six months before I found a full-time job. Uh, just applying for jobs and that kind of thing. And then when I found a full-time job, I just saved up a bunch of money. And um, when I left my full-time job, I had enough money saved up that I could, that I have like a little bit of a safety net so that I was able to just full-time focus on finding clients for a straight two months. And a lot of people will uh, have a full-time job and then hustle on the side on evenings and weekends. I found that extremely difficult to do because a lot of the hustling involves reaching out to potential clients and it's difficult to do that around 5 or 6 p.m. when most businesses are closed, <laughs> uh, especially in Grimby when like I would want to just like walk around with my business cards or something like that and hand out to business but those businesses are already closed because it's past five uh, and then on weekends I don't know I, I don't want to make up excuses for people either but it's definitely easy to focus all of your time and energy on freelancing when you have all of the time in the world like days <laughs> and months even so I found that really beneficial to just have enough money saved up so that I could dedicate straight like a straight two months of full-time work on finding clients and establishing a brand for myself Okay, so it'd actually be better to save up money working my job full-time and then yeah. spending a whole period of time going full-time looking for clients and finding work. Yeah, I found that really useful for me. Like that worked for me. And I know that the hustle lifestyle works for a lot of other people. Um, mm. I was honestly just exhausted a lot of the time after I finished work at the end of the day. So I just would not feel motivated to go and, uh, and hustle and get in my computer. Although I still made short films sometimes with the Niagara Film Collective, which is this one filmmaking group that I love uh, that lives, that's kind of close to me. It's Niagara Falls. It's like a half an hour away from where I live because I live in, um, I live in like closer to Hamilton, like 10 minutes east of Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, like, it's nice to have that little film community and uh, edit some videos kind of on the side, but I wasn't really like hustling hard and looking for right. clients who actually paid me money, you know, and oh, I so also wasn't registered. Yeah. Oh, sorry. So sounds like I the, just wanna, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I, I just want to also mention that I wasn't um, registered as a sole proprietor either. So that is also something you want to look into if you want to be a freelancer and you haven't thought about that yet. It's just registering as that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. go on. So it sounds like that okay. if you're if you're doing the side hustle thing, that's more of like akin to having a hobby. Like you have your yeah. main job and this is just something that you're doing on the side, which is not a problem. Yeah. And sometimes people get yeah. paid for their hobbies. Yeah, uh, but then if you really sure. wanted to do a career change or you wanted to actually get into freelance seriously, it sounds like it's mm -hmm. way more efficient. Um, yeah. To just focus on your job, save the money, and then mm -hmm. go at it full time. Yeah, I think so. Because you also, I feel like you just wouldn't want to be hustling and spending all of your energy on hustling and emailing people, making connections and doing odd jobs on the weekend and that kind of thing, because that leaves you zero time to learn. And I found it very beneficial when I was working full time to spend time on my own, just learning about marketing and learning about branding and learning about graphic design and editing and video and photo and everything like that because then I could take these skills that I was learning during my time working and then I could apply those and actually use them when I when I left my job you know like it's learning is such a huge part of it and if you don't learn then you don't even have any real skills and you always have to be learning so it's better to like 
have that face for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. That's interesting. So you're, you're full-time working, uh, basically part-time learning and then mm -hmm. saving the money so that you can quit and then start doing that full-time with the skills that you've learned. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I, I have to, I have to mention one other thing. It's just that when you quit your full-time job, um, of course, like if you have enough money saved up that you can pay for your expenses and that kind of thing, that's great. Um, but I was also lucky because I have a very cheap apartment in Grimsby. Like it's, it's way cheaper than in Toronto. And mm -hmm. I also split it with my fiance. So we pay honestly between the two of us, we pay four twenty-five each and it's a two bedroom apartment. Mm -hmm. uh, so we just found a pretty cheap place to live. And um, yeah, so we're just kind of lucky in that way too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like there's some luck that goes into it. There's a little bit of luck in everything, you know? Yeah, a little bit of luck, but at the same time making use of what you have. Yes, uh, definitely. And I think that everyone can do that. Everyone can find the resources that they have, just look around them. Maybe it's people, maybe it's things, maybe it's money, maybe it's skills, and just use those um, in whatever way you think is good. Everyone can come up with a different business strategy if they focus on the resources. I mean, like, look at what you're doing right now. You're working with a community of people who have even less resources than that. Yeah, that's true. Like, I mean, what would they, what would those people give to pay for a very expensive apartment rental in Toronto and have no time, right? I mean, I, I, <laughs> I have no like, idea. Yeah, but like, if given the yeah. opportunity, I'm pretty sure so many people in that part of the world would just jump on it. You know, the life that we're complaining yeah, about here, they, there's all these people there who put, you know, so long as they're willing to leave their communities behind, yeah. they'd be willing to take yeah. it. And we definitely see a lot of that in Canada. Yeah, I think a lot of them wouldn't really be willing to leave their communities and also their job potential is in Tanzania because they completely understand the culture and the community that mm -hmm. they're living in. And so when it comes to marketing their businesses, it's kind of easier to do that in Tanzania because they understand the Tanzanian market. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. does that make sense? Yeah, yeah okay, that makes cool. sense. Yeah, like not, yeah. that, not that they wouldn't want to live in Toronto because maybe they would want to live in Toronto, but um, I think everyone's a little bit more comfortable in their own home country. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You, you yeah. know what it is? It's because it's I live in a biased um, community. Of, I'm surrounded by communities of immigrants who did not think, I think most people think that way about their, their mm -hmm. own area of where they live. I just live with yeah. around people who decide they're going to move from their old country, leave everything behind and come here. Totally. So everyone yeah. I know and everyone's parents that they have, they're, they're all here because they, they just left it all behind to come here. So I have like a completely, yeah. that's interesting. Low resolution view based on my assumptions <laughs> from the immigrants that I, yeah. uh, I grew up around. And that is a whole other topic. Like I'm sure mm. that they have their own histories and reasons why they came to live in Canada too. Um, and it's based on struggles that they were facing in their home country. But if, mm. they, uh, if the people here in Tanzania have um, people or organizations or nonprofits or projects in Tanzania that, that can help them, uh, that can help them like boost their business or teach them some skills or something like that, then they don't really need to move to another country because they have support in their home country. Mm -hmm. And then, oh, there's something else that I want to mention about the T-LED project too. So the T-LED project was started five years ago by, um, by VSO and CUSO, which are, uh, so CUSO is the Canadian organization that I talked about before, and then VSO is basically its European equivalent. And before CUSO and VSO were partnered up, and that's how the project came out. It's kind of like their baby. Uh, but now the project is wrapping up in two months, so at the end of um, at the end of March. And so 
And so then there's this other organization that's a Tanzanian organization called CIDO, S-I-D-O, and mm -hmm. that one is taking over the TLED project. So the TLED project isn't ending, it's just being transitioned over to uh, CIDO. And then mm -hmm. everything is going to be done in Tanzania and uh, hopefully it will be, it will continue, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, it will, like the, and then entrepreneurs will continue to have that support from the organization and from the project. All right. So if um, yeah. our viewers want to get in contact with you uh, for more information about what you're doing, or even if you wanted to get, um, hire you for some uh, services, where can they reach you at? So I have a website. My website is aaronforreal.com, but um, I have to spell it out because it's it's actually spelled out like Aaron for eel, and it's spelled so it's spelled out with two e's because I did a little pun and it's like a film reel, you know. So it's e r i n um, f o r e e l dot com. I'll say it again just for fun, um, even though you're probably going to put it in the description or something like that. But it's e r i n f o r E-E-L dot com. And then okay. my so for uh, real, Instagram, there's no two R's. Yeah, there's no two R's. There's just one R. And then for my Instagram, it is the one that I use the most, like my personal one that I post. On, I'm actually doing a February challenge right now. So I'm posting on Instagram every day. And uh, that Instagram account is E-R-I-N-B-E-T-Z-K. So it's Aaron Betts with a Z-K. Uh, Betts, I like Betty is my middle name. So that's where Betts came from. And uh, then if you go on there, you can see my business Instagram account, too, with some of my portfolio stuff. All right. All that information will be on the description and on the screen right now. Awesome. Right. Okay, cool. It was really show. nice to talk to you. Yeah, thank you.